0: Welcome to HARP, the Human Analysis and Research Program. This program is an in-depth look at the species known as Homo sapiens, originating on Sol 3. Archives contain historical documents, eyewitness accounts, and other recorded media pertaining to the behavior, life cycle, society, and evolution of humans. You are currently accessing Archive A01, Security Level Alpha Detected. Restrictions cleared read only files loaded, beginning archive playback
1: the dead race by Arabeos,
0: read by Nicholas Merrick begin recording humans are an interesting topic from various standpoints because they are universally discriminated against by all known galactic polities even in day-to-day life walking along our streets humans still seem to be the only acceptable target for our baser biases something which i will remind you is not tolerated by this campus for those of you who have never seen a human And even for those of you who have, I will remind you that I will be showing accurate hollows of humans during today's lecture and for the remainder of this course. Jiblaia, if you would? Yes, that is a human. Unaugmented, by the way, which I'll explain later. As a Meraxian myself, I can say they look shockingly familiar to our bodies after we've decayed for a while. I'm told that Xavians find their uniform skin coloration strikingly similar to a particular fatal disease that plagued their homeworld. The clip among you will no doubt find their lack of body fur to be similar to the corpses of your own species. Jiblaia here, as our lone Tyvulk, tells me that humans look nearly identical to a particular virus that left much of their first extrasolar colony without a living soul. I can go on and on. The point is that humans... Through some as of yet unexplained quirk of biology, or misfortune, or statistic improbability, no one is quite sure which, look like the representation of death across all known species. Yes, all. Question? Student question maintained for lecture notes. They don't look scary to me, Professor. Ah, yes, they don't, but if you will permit me to play the hollow. Human speech. Recorder doesn't contain human translation software. Purchase now for 21 credits. Yes. Class, for those of you who don't know why Z Is Lu is as pale as you are now, the human vocal sounds usually range in certain frequencies. The same frequencies that Zeeus Lu's people create on their deathbeds. Yes. Human sounds, smells, visual cues, range of movements, and even cultural development is unappealing to all of us again it seems a marvel of terrible terrible luck that this just happens to be so earlier i mentioned that this was an unaugmented human i'll show you a modern augmented human again they are on the receiving end of bad circumstances they do look amazingly similar to the corpse soldiers that were employed by the brills during the last galactic war don't they transspeciesism transhumanism when referring to the human application is widely rejected by galactic society because of the aforementioned brill's use of technologically reanimated corpses that happened only so long ago as a veteran of that war i freely say that i nearly wet myself in terror upon first seeing a human now with some context in mind as to their physical appearance it is obvious why most of us would prefer not to associate with humans despite humans being wonderfully adaptive and successful in certain sectors of work. Do any of you know which sectors these are? Student guesses omitted. Yes, military ground forces, acting, and medicine. The first two areas are well understood. The psychological impact of soldiers naturally appearing as the universal symbols of death cannot be underestimated. I'm sure the nearby Mount Zipley Military Academy has an entire course centered on humans in combat. Human actors find many roles in galactic terror films requiring no makeup to get into character. Of course, Professor Yuzluk over in the Arts Department teaches an entire course in human art appreciation. Professor Yuzluk tells me that human romantic gestures and comedies are making a big splash in the galactic art circles, due to the juxtaposition of human actors with themes of love, laughter, and life. Medicine, however, is a bit harder to wrap our head around. Tell me, which of you would like to wake up on an operating table and see this man —humans have two genders—operating on you? I speak from personal experience again, referring to my previous statement about wetting myself. Class laughter omitted. However, it works. Human medical facilities, human doctors and nurses have the highest rate of patient recovery than any other species. This is, I argue, because of their unfortunate appearance. Much study has been done into this particular phenomenon, especially considering that while human medical technology is quite ahead of the curve due to part of their augmentation practices, it is not entirely able to account for human medical success rates. Something other must be a major factor. And here again, I talk from personal experience. I first met a human when I woke up in Nuevos Aires Hospital on the planet Luvia. I was only nine at the time and working on a doctorate on cross-species relations, and I thought to myself, what better place than on one of the colonies of the most looked-down-upon race? I was arriving by shuttle when my shuttle's AI pilot unexpectedly malfunctioned and was involved in a crash. I woke up on an operating table surrounded by humans. For a brief moment, I did in fact think that I had perished in the crash and moved into the afterlife. I only realized where I was after the first surgery and had become lucid again. Class, I tell you, in those four days, I have never felt more safe. Yes, even with life-threatening surgeries still scheduled, blood transfusions and limbs being cloned as replacements, you do not know how safe a person feels when surrounded by literal walking images of death, and when those corpse people look down on you on an operating table and whisper, death doesn't want you today.
1: The Great Filters by Deomik. Read by Nicholas Merrick We were lonely.
0: So lonely. We wandered for hundreds of thousands of years through desolate space, searching eagerly for life. We scoured the planets of every star, slowly settling on each system we passed by. We colonized one star, and then the next, and another, and another, until finally our entire galaxy was filled. Yet we were not satisfied. You see, our species was an old one, similar in many ways to your own. We fought wars of conquest over scraps of land and materials on our homeworld, gradually growing in numbers and knowledge. Eventually, we united as one people. We solved the problems that had been plaguing us, and we progressed. Petty concerns like old age and resources were no more an obstacle. In essence, we were truly free. To live, to learn, to explore, our choices were not bound by our bodies. But we were alone. Oh, we, we had found life on other planets. The occasional single-celled organism a few plant-based ecosystems once we found insect-like creatures inhabiting a distant moon never intelligent life your species called our dilemma the fermi paradox we called it the eternal isolation regardless the fact of the matter remained the same unless we decided to create another sentient race we would not find any others. We did not create another race. At least we did not create another one at first. Our species had argued about this for centuries, but we decided not to play God. At first. Anyway. We assumed that there were filters, as you named it, preventing intelligent life. In our galaxy, we hypothesized the existence of two major obstacles. The first was the leap from single-celled organisms to multicellular ones. The second was the jump from multicellular organisms to sentient ones. Perhaps there were others we do not know. We, of course, had already made it past all the filters. Or so we thought. Millions of years after our unification and exodus from our home world, We stumbled upon your galaxy, the Milky Way. Of course, as we slowly, ever so slowly, traveled across your galaxy, we discovered nothing unusual. The planets we found were either barren or barely capable of supporting life. And then we started hearing you. In the beginning, there were only wisps of radio signals, unlike any we had heard before. Our instruments were delicate, finely tuned, made to listen to the final breaths of dying stars intended to advance our knowledge. Glorious devices for a glorious purpose. Yet even they were hard-pressed to capture your messages. Oh, but did we ever discover anything more marvelous than you? Slowly, painstakingly slowly, we made our way from the opposite side of the galaxy to your own. As we moved closer, we reveled in your development. Your muffled sounds soon became grainy pictures, and every tiny step forward was cause for our own celebration. As we inched closer to you, our understanding of you grew stronger. Through the signals and transmissions you had cast off into the void, we learned of your lives and we fell in love. We fell in love with the vibrancy of your culture, the sheer variance and breathtaking volume of your society. You were young and wild and passionate, and everything we once were and yet were no more. Remember, we were not just a lonely people, but a stagnant one as well. we had advanced to a standstill. We had unknowingly sterilized our own culture in the name of progress, something we did not realize until we met you. Finally, we found physical proof of your existence a lonely probe, an old traveler from ages ago. You called it the Voyager. We called it the Messenger. We were ecstatic, utterly overjoyed at the solid, corporeal, undeniable proof that another intelligent species existed. No longer were you a figment of your transmissions. You were real. We sent the Messenger back to our pristine homeworld a place that had become sacred to us. We planned to install him in a place of honor, a place worthy of him. We sent him back, and we moved forward, closer to you. The Little Ones, we called you. Yes, we knew your actual name, but we preferred the name we had given you, the diminutive we reserved for the few we loved. Evidence of your existence grew stronger. We were bombarded by signals of your civilization of music and movies and internet and holograms, and we were utterly astonished at the rapid rate of your progress. Perhaps by the time we reached you, your species would be more advanced than ours. After what felt like eons, we arrived in your solar system. Our ships approached your home world. And we found nothing but a desolate wasteland. We had been in love with the great. We had loved the ruins of a civilization more beautiful than our own, more beautiful than any fantasy we could have dreamed of. A civilization too beautiful to last. A civilization that never made it, Past the Great Filter
1: The Lords of War, by Scottskin, read by Nicholas Merrick The Lords of war,
0: yeah, I, I know it's a weird name, but it's stuck. Oh, you're asking why they're called that well. Give yourself some sawwarch, because it's a long story. See, before the Lord showed up on the scene, most xenobiologists were pretty darn sure it was impossible for a sapient species to arise on a death world. Hyperaggressive fauna coupled with an extreme biosphere, variation, and extremely active geology would pretty much guarantee that even if something smart did show up, its own planet would end up killing it anyway. Then the probes came back with news of two planets proving our scientists dead wrong. The first was a pale blue marble. The natives were upright, semi-hairless apes. And they were mean. They'd grown up in a sprawling savanna with a cruel sun and even crueler predators. Something that only made them harder. Their dangerous home had molded them into monsters of endurance and they usually just chased whatever they hunted until it collapsed from exhaustion. They used to call themselves the wise men, if you can believe that. Anyway, the second planet was a green jewel. The natives were feathered serpents that came out of the central jungle of the planet, with two arms and no legs. They didn't have the endurance that the first species did, but sharp claws, sharper teeth, and overwhelming drive to survive. They brought down the massive hungry beasts that roamed the canopies and forest floor with stones and spears, along with the weapons nature had given them. And both would just as readily kill each other as they would kill their prey. So, we had two super violent, sapient predators from death worlds that flew in the face of all conventional knowledge that the only races that can achieve sapience are herbivores and sometimes omnivores with low-meat diets. This scared everyone just a little bit, but we were sure that they'd just wipe themselves out in a century or two. But for safe measure, the council declared that no government or individual contact them. Imagine to our surprise when we saw the serpents survive their own bloodlust. Their conquests led to empires, not extinction. Their battles led to innovation, not loss. They dragged themselves through the Industrial Age, and by that time, there were only three nation-states left. At which point, the largest of the three conquered the other two in a decisive war, their leader declaring himself the Holy Emperor. But them being united didn't really change who they were, and I think they had like two or three civil wars before they discovered hyperdrive while testing a weapon. The apes were pretty much the same, except after they had two global wars and used nuclear weapons at the end of the second one, they lied to themselves and said they would never fight again, forging a shaky alliance under a blue flag. That lasted about a century until they went right back to the killing. But then they went a little overboard and most of their civilization fell apart. When it was all said and done, the quote-unquote United Nations was the only governing body left. Even then, they still fought amongst themselves openly and bitterly in the obscure corners of their world. I forgot how exactly that batch discovered hyperdrive. Something involving them accidentally blowing up their innermost planet. You want to get some more sawwarch? Some boshin, maybe? No? Alright, suit yourself. So, to recap, two very angry, very dangerous species achieved spaceflight even when they got there, they didn't stop the violence. The homeworlds fought with the colonies all the time. And both species were within 100 parsecs of each other. Some scientists ran the numbers, and they estimated that at the rate they were going, the apes and the serpents would run into each other in about 500 years. This revelation came as something of a dark joke. Since nobody was allowed to contact them, we could only watch the collision happen in slow motion. Some more depraved people began making bets on which of the two would survive the coming bloodbath. And, sure enough, it happened. 523 years after the prediction had been made, they made first contact. Everyone was expecting that they would fire as soon as they caught sight of each other. And they did. That was how most of their quote-unquote meetings occurred in the following decades. Eventually, both of their governments managed to establish formal diplomatic relations, and for a time, there was relative quiet. But neither side trusted the other. In the years of peace, the United Nations and the Holy Empire began stockpiling their machines of death, building ships, bombs, guns of all varieties, weapons of mass destruction, combat exoskeletons, and a thousand other ways to kill. The Council was divided on what they should do. The Helbin, who were considered the meanest race before the other two showed up, and their slave races, argued that the apes and the serpents should be exterminated for the good of galactic peace. The Shra and their allies tried to convince the council to go back on their previous edict and send a mediator. The Voit kept saying the council should just let both sides kill each other and let the problem solve itself. After years of deadlock, the Helbin simply declared a decision had been rendered. They would exterminate the races regardless of what the council said. And so the Helbin and their many slaves sent their massive fleet towards the two unsuspecting races. The apes were hit first. Blackridge, their largest industrial center, had its shipyards destroyed and its planet bombarded into dust. At first, the apes thought the serpents were invading until they received a message from the Holy Empire that three of their colonies had been glassed by the same ships. In those moments, the Helbin had made a great and final mistake. Millions of years of collective evolution in the cradles of nightmares had been unleashed. Every ship, every soldier, every weapon that had ever been intended for each other was released upon the Helbin. In the weeks after the first strikes, the fleets of both species were brought together in fury and blood. While they were technologically inferior, the psychology that their violent past had given them led them to innovations in combat that the Helbin had never thought of. Kamikaze attacks, boarding parties, scorched earth, total war. These were concepts completely alien to the Helbin and everyone else. When the majority of the Helbin fleet was destroyed, they retreated back to their own systems. But the apes and serpents demanded the blood they spilled be paid back a hundredfold. The Helbin erected planetary shields. The aliens responded by sending huge troop transports to capture their cities and bring the barriers down. The civilizations of the galaxy learned the true meaning of war on those years. Every day we saw another city fall. Another pile of the insectoid Helbin corpses. I saw a picture of an ape, with the words that meant born to kill etched onto her helmet. An armored serpent looking over the ruins of a city with a rifle in his claw. Soldiers of both species chatting amongst themselves as columns of flame and black pillars of smoke billowed behind them. Soon, we stopped making a distinction between the two. They had become the lords of war. "'united in purpose and in viciousness. "'When the lords felt the Helben had finally been humiliated enough, "'they offered surrender. "'Even with the warriors looming over their homeworld, "'the High Proctor refused the term, "'saying he would never submit to savages. "'They dropped troops, stormed the Palace of Glory, "'captured the High Proctor along with 20 other of top-ranking members "'of the Assembly of Overseers. "'Surrender was offered again.' Again, the proctor said no. After a few hours, a broadcast was sent to the entire homeworld. It showed the proctor being lined up against a wall and gunned down by a firing squad. When it was over, a message was sent. They would go down the line of succession, killing each of the officials they had captured until they accepted their terms. Every day, they would broadcast another execution until finally, only one remained. He was much less fanatical than the others, and with the threat of death over him, signed the surrender of his own civilization. Hold on, let me, let me pull the treaty up they made him sign. <clears throat> the Treaty of Absolute and Complete Dismantlement of the Cooperative Society of Helben by United Imperial Command. <laughs> Mouthful, huh? Article A. The Cooperative Society the Helben is to Abolish Its Military Immediately. Article B. The Cooperative Society of the Helbin is to release its slaves immediately. Article C. Following Article A and B, the Cooperative Society of the Helbin is hereby dissolved and its former territories will remain under occupation until the governments of the United Nations and the Holy Empire see fit. Signed, High Proctor Siwag, Supreme Admiral Charles Jung, Holy Emperor Palika Twelfth. Brutal. In its simplicity, the largest conflict the galaxy had ever seen was over. The aftermath brought even more changes than the war itself. They had been too busy killing the Helbin to formally establish contact with anyone else, but after they did, they were rather amused about their new name. Rather than reject it, they readily embraced it, casting off their old titles. No more humans, no more HaSul, only the Lords of War. And since they were united by name, I guess they made the next logical step and figured it was time to unite their governments too. The Serpent Emperor has long been reduced to a ceremonial figure. So it was, with no protest, that he was made emperor of both races under a great federation. If you were also wondering why it's called the United Empire, that's a bonus for you. So, there you go. Two insane murder aliens found common ground on how much they loved to murder, and got a new name because they loved to murder so much. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of a group of lords without both types being there. I'm rambling. The point is, never, ever fuck with the lords of war. Huh? Why did I marry one, then? Well, if you want to know that story, then I'm going to need some props.
1: Primal Hunger by Gudo8797 Read by Nicholas Merrick
0: The young Juntar pulled over to the parking lot of the nursing home, his heart beating slightly faster as he failed to cover his excitement. I can't believe the old man agreed to an interview! I'm gonna ace my project! Picking up his notebook, recorder, and pencil, the student headed inside, where he had an appointment to conduct an interview with Mr. Zahun. Mr. Zahun was a legend in their community. Out of 5,000 men his village sent to the Great War 40 years ago, only he returned. Rumors told that he had been wounded, scarred, or even dismissed during a large battle. Voon was struggling with his history project regarding the war when he fired a long shot that paid off three days ago, as a letter arrived from Mr. Zahun himself agreeing to an interview on the subject. He had never shared his experiences, and the aspiring Juntar was certain that his testimony would grant him the passing grade he needed. As he knocked on the door of the room the nurse had pointed him to, the door simply swung open. Hello? Mr. Zahun?
1: It's me. Voon, the student that
0: sent you that letter, may I come in? Inside the room, sitting on a rocking chair facing the window, an old man sat alone, his gaze lost amid the autumn leaves. His four eyes were old and tired, and the weight of age was visible on his exoskeleton. The room itself was simple, modest, clean, with framed paintings on the walls, one of a village a young man in uniform smiling with his squad, an old woman smiling in a hospital bed. Only the paintings and the vase of flowers sitting on the table broke the monotony of the room. Without even moving his head or paying any attention to the newcomer, the aged veteran spoke with a calm, scratched voice. Come in. Have a seat. With a strong feeling of anticipation, the student moved in and sat on the chair, opposing the aged man. After an uncomfortably long amount of time, Mr. Zahun finally spoke, still not moving his eyes from the window, and the interview began. With the recorder working and the swift pencil taking note after note, Voon asked question after question and Mr. Zahun answered, never moving his head or eyes, name, age, day of deployment, motive, experiences, comrades, lessons, small and big questions. Voon conducted a thorough interview and was delighted as he recorded honest answer after answer. Can't wait to see Mrs. Hahn's face when I show her this. Eventually, however, Voon asked a question that would change the course of that interview. If it's not too inconvenient, can you tell me the worst experience you had in the war? Silence fell upon the room, and the student was afraid he had pushed too far, until the veteran uttered, almost a whisper,
2: Terograd
0: Terograd the human colony of Roshnia IV, the one with the famous siege? What made it so bad? The orbital bombardment? The shelling? The snipers? The humans. The humans? questioned Voon. Weren't they our allies? You mean the merchants that are known for being peaceful, good diplomats, and even better friends? Those. Now listen well,
3: young man. I'm about to tell you the reason no one speaks of TerraGrad. I was posted there on (coughs) R&R. After our latest assignment at the Battle of Brage, we were supposed to be resting when that damned fleet showed up and laid siege to the colony. The only reason they didn't bomb us all to infinity was because of the shield system, (coughs) and because they wanted the Xenocore, the information banks of the central computer. But we did our jobs, and the defenses held, so the Karshir resorted to a siege. Time was on their side. Things were peaceful for a while, while the occasional shelling and missiles But otherwise, we were fine. (coughs) But as time stretched, so did our supplies. As the winter set in, the commander installed a rationing system. Full ration for military personnel. Three quarters of a ration for civilians. We expected a relief force any moment then. Perhaps even that week. But a week became a month. And a month became a year, and our food storages (laughs) were always, always shrinking. By the end of the year, the military was reduced to three-fifths of a ration, and civilians to a third. Hunger became starvation. (coughs) Excuse me. The civilian population was mostly composed of humans and the way they got their minds off the constant hunger and cold was remarkable. Most fit men applied to the army, hoping to get food, but some started producing ammo and repairing vehicles in exchange for rations. Some played games and told stories, whereas the Juntar would commit suicide to escape the hunger. The humans just grasped their aching stomachs and carried on, They attempted hunting raids, they planted vegetables, or just kept themselves busy to ward off the hunger. By the end of the second year, we started getting strange reports. Pets missing, rat bones scattered over the city, that sort of thing. (laughs) Didn't take very long to figure out what was going on. Even after surviving without food far longer than any other species could. The humans fell to starvation. I'm afraid of the planet that imbued them with these instincts for the things they did out of hungry desperation. (coughs) (coughs) They were eating everything. Pets, rats, bugs, grass, trees, some even gnawed on metal plates. The situation was getting incredibly dire. There wasn't any more food in the city. I was on patrol one day when I heard a noise coming from an alley. I decided to investigate, and the moment I turned on my flashlight, what I saw could never leave me again.
2: A woman. Human completely starved to the brink. It was horrible.
3: You could count her bones. You could see them through the skin so wrinkled and caving into her face. Turns out human bodies will, in extreme conditions, (coughs) digest themselves. But that's not the worst of it. She wielded a bloody knife in her hand and at her feet. Laid a corpse, a bloody wound, flesh ripped off, still dangling from her mouth. It was her husband. She'd killed him for his flesh.
2: And then she stared at me.
0: For the first time since the interview began, Zahun moved his eyes away from the window and locked them onto Voon. He gripped the young man's hand with such strength it nearly cracked. With eyes wide open, an expression of nightmares, the old man's voice rose into a shout.
3: What I saw was darkness.
0: Those eyes stared into
3: my core <coughs> and burned me to ashes. They were completely savage, ferocious, primal. The Kishir launched wild gas grenades at us, made us revert to our primitive, irrational selves. The beings we once were before we evolved. But humans, humans don't have such a state. (coughs) No, 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 no. Humans are far, far worse. They go primal. Behind those kind, peaceful souls, there's a darkness. It's locked deep down. A darkness that comes out during desperate times. Times such as starvation, that primal hunger. It is infinitely worse than our primitive state, for they retain their rational mind. However, all that intellect, (coughs) all that creativity, those skills and capacities, their only focus now is to do anything to survive. Kill. maim,
2: Hunt. I stared into that darkness, and it consumed me. I saw millennia of survival on a death world. Hunters, cruelty, savagery, cannibalism. A peaceful species turned
3: into the ultimate predator for the sake of survival. Rushing catastrophic wounds aside, ignoring pain and suffering, chasing prey for hours on end. Feet turned into bloody pulps, intent only on the kill. When faced with a primal hunger, humanity unleashed their darkness. Their instincts kept locked away behind civilization and a love for peace. But when they break out, a monster
2: emerges, ready to do whatever it takes to survive.
3: What tales do they tell home of my story? A brave warrior wounded in combat. A rogue soldier sent home. Lies! <coughs> I survived the landing on Cromoa Breach. I endured the fight in the jungles on Inversia. I alone endured the sands of Eloraine. It wasn't
2: any of those that broke me. Go home, boy. And tell them the truth. I stared into the abyss. And the abyss stared right back. It had human eyes. And it was hungry.
1: End of Archive a zero one. one